So the practice of loving-kindness is called in Pali, which is the ancient Buddhist language, metta. And metta is a cognate with the word for friend, which is mitta. And the idea of metta is a kind of friendly attitude towards ourself or towards other people. And it's very strongly associated with Buddhism, especially the Buddhism that uh, we kind of belong to, the Theravadan tradition of Southeast Asia, where loving-kindness is considered to be kind of the foundational positive virtue that Buddhists in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka will be developing, will develop. The mindfulness practice is the practice of seeing clearly what's actually here, learning how to be present for things as they are without reacting against them or pushing away or holding on, just being present in a simple, direct way for how things are. Loving-kindness is different than that because it's actually generating a sense of goodwill or using goodwill as the reference for how our interpersonal relationship should be, the relationship to ourselves. Often when we go about our life, we have to make decisions about how to act and what to do. Mindfulness helps us to see very clearly what the situation is, what our reactions, our feelings, our thoughts, our values, that go into it. And loving-kindness is one of the things that Buddhists use to help them, guide them, where the, what, the, what the decision should be. Is this a kind thing that I'm going to do now? You're, you know, is it, are, you doing, are you doing something kind or are you doing something which is unkind at this moment? Wouldn't you rather be doing something that's kind? Buddhists try to cultivate the sense of mitta or metta, friendliness or kindness, not artificially, not as a cover or as a suppression of other feelings we might have. Um, there's always the recognition that we might not feel kind towards people or towards ourselves, And it's not supposed to be pushing or repressing those feelings, but rather recognizing the unkindness that might be there, the anger or the hostility or the sadness or whatever might be there. And even with that there, seeing if we can find in some core some corner or some core essence of who we are, that it would be nice to wish well for this person. You want this person's well-being. You want your own well-being. In uh, Theravadan Buddhism, metta is the foundational virtue. And on the cultivation of loving-kindness, the other four primary virtues of the tradition follow. So the other primary virtues are Compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Compassion is the wishing, the wish that someone not suffer. Sympathetic joy is sharing empathetically in the happiness someone else is ex- experiencing. So both of them, both have to do with empathy. Compassion is empathizing with the suffering of someone, and sympathetic joy is empathizing with their happiness. And those are qualities that arise out of loving-kindness. If you feel kindly towards people, then you're likely to feel these other emotions. The four Brahma-viharas, they're called the four, um, loving-kindness, sympathetic joy, compassion, and equanimity, are called Brahma-viharas. Brahma is the great god of Indian pantheon of gods. He's kind of like the ruler god. 
in ancient India, they believed, it's kind of like the ancient Greeks. There was, you know, many gods. And then there was Zeus in the Greek pantheon. Well, in ancient India, Brahma was the equivalent of Zeus. And um, Vihara means a dwelling place. So these four virtues are called the four Brahma Viharas. The, some people translate it English, into English as the four divine abodes. Brahma being the highest God, the highest divinity, the four divine abodes. When we are at our best, when the best qualities within us come to the foreground, then it's kind of a div- divine kind of qualities that come through. Lo- love, kindness, compassion. And Vihara means it's a place to dwell. It's a place to hang out. It's a place where we can kind of operate from when we go about our life. The four Brahma Viharas are also called the four immeasurables or the four infinite qualities, the four boundless states. And that they're not supposed to have any boundaries to them. When they're really fully, you know, initially you might first have some kindness or love towards yourself and then towards other people. But as meditators develop this quality, Buddhist in the spiritual life, they develop it so that these qualities of loving kindness and compassion become boundless or immeasurable, where they don't even have to be directed to any particular person. They're just boundless states of the heart. The heart is just completely open and boundless. It has no limit to how, what the heart will include within it in a loving, kind, friendly way. And it's really remarkable to go to, uh, for example, Southeast Asia and to meet some of the, especially the monks and nuns who have spent maybe 30, 40, 50 years every day practicing loving-kindness meditation. And maybe not only in meditation, but also in their daily life. They keep the loving-kindness practice going as they go through their life. And it's maybe some, some people, it's the, the primary spiritual practice that they've engaged in for all these years. And these people just are beaming. You know, they're kind of like, if you get in the, in, into their field, it's like you're in this field of loving-kindness. It's just like a remarkable thing to feel. When I was first introduced to loving-kindness practice, the Buddhist practice, I mistrusted it. I thought it was kind of an artificial thing. How could someone kind of do a practice that kind of generates or you know, makes happen feelings or attitudes of kindness or love or friendliness? Those things that kind of happen spontaneously, you don't want to manufacture them or call them forth because then it's kind of artificial. So in my own uh, early training, when uh, the teacher would guide us in loving-kindness meditation, I would always tune the teacher out. I'm not going to do that part. I'm not going to do that. I just continue with my mindfulness practice. And then the remarkable thing happened was that mindfulness itself, as it develops and matures, um, softens, tenderizes the heart so that the natural goodness, the natural friendliness kindness of the heart begins shining on its own. And then when the teachers led the loving-kindness meditation, I, I was right there with them because all this kindness was bubbling up through my own heart. And the old crusts of fear and stuff had dissolved. And then I got really into it. It was really great. Some people will take to the loving-kindness practice right away. And some people will be like me, say, you know, no way. You know, this is dumb. And uh, I don't know how it was for you to do it. But both attitudes are allowed. <laughs> it's fine to have both ways. 
I'm very fond of the fact that the scholars of Buddhism uh, who studied ancient early Buddhism and they study these, this, these four practices of the Brahma Viharas point out that um, these were originally not Buddhist practices. Though in the modern world they're often associated with Buddhism. They seem to have been spiritual practices that were just part of the spiritual scene of ancient India. As were many, some of the teachings of the Buddha were not unique to the Buddha. He just adopted things that made sense to him from the spiritual traditions around him. And those traditions have long since died away. And so people associate these things with, with the Buddha and Buddhism because that's where they survived. The Brahma Viharas are like that. They were part of kind of the general Indian spiritual milieu of the, of the time of the Buddha. And I'm, I like this a lot because what it means is that it doesn't, they don't belong to a particular religion. It's not like a Buddhist religious thing, you know, you have to be a Buddhist to do it or something. I, I like to think of it, they're just universal qualities that we all have. We all have the capacity for kindness, for love. We all have the, ki- the capacity for compassion, empathy. And that it's important to develop that capacity we have. And we don't have to leave it to chance that these things will just arise by accident. You know, we can kind of pray at night, you know, please, you know, tomorrow can I have some compassion or some kindness or something. And, but we can actually do something to cultivate that and develop it. And one of the principles of Buddhist spirituality is that our intentions are like seeds. And if you act or express any kind of intention that seed will flower, will develop, will grow into a wonderful plant. If your intentions are mostly intentions of ill will, of aggression, of self-loathing, then what you're actually doing is watering that seed of self-loathing and aggression, whatever it is. And it becomes more like a habit that we're more likely to do more in the future. If we cultivate and water the seeds of kindness, of love, then you're more likely to have those develop and mature in your life. If you leave it to accident, then you know it has to do with you know the, the, all the oddities of daily life. That maybe you feel loving one day or maybe not. You know you don't know, but you can actually intentionally or uh, consciously choose to work on this intention. You can't make yourself feel loving, but you can water the seeds of the desire to be kind, desire of goodwill. And um, what's remarkable is that. Um, a person who might do this in their own meditation practice every day, maybe 10 minutes each day of their, in their meditation practice, some people will make it the primary meditation practice, is that as it, ha- as it becomes more part of yourself, from regular part, and more, more close at hand, more accessible, more something you're familiar with, and something that, it pops up at unusual times. You find yourself in a situation, normally you would have been really angry at that person, but because you've kind of made a regular practice of practicing kindness in your meditation, the attitude of looking at this person kindly or wanting to is right there close at hand. And you find yourself remarkably looking at this person in a new way rather than looking at the person through the, the colored glasses of aggression or anger or hurt. You look at the person through the colored glasses of wanting that person's well-being or seeing that person's capacity for happiness. One of the um, images, images or analogies or whatever for loving kindness practice is the kind of um, care or tenderness or caregiving or love that a parent has for their child. The traditional way of saying it is the way the mother feels for her only child. 
So kind of a parental feeling. But it's not meant only for your children, it's meant for yourself and for all other beings. And so I like, when I do loving kindness practice for other other people sometimes, I like to imagine, even if if someone I don't like, or someone I have trouble with or tension with, I think about them, and I think, how were they seen by their mother when they were one year old or a baby? How did their mother treat them, you know, when they were one week old? How did their mother see them and hold them? And what kind of wishes did the mother have for that person? And, and, and you know, what did the mother see in that child? And, and sometimes, for me at least, that kind of changes the filter by which I look at a person from the, you know, the, the hurt or the anger or the fear that I might have. And I see that that person has a capacity for happiness, for joy, for tenderness that sometimes will transform my relationship to that person. Sometimes I see that person, if that person was, op- was operating from their core tenderness within them, I don't think the person would be doing what they're doing right now. And seeing that person has a capacity for that kind of tenderness, I don't ignore or deny or condone what they've done if they've hurt me or something, but I'm more likely to kind of come back to them in a kinder way in my dealings with that person rather than coming back automatically and aggressively or something like that. So the regular practice of loving-kindness predisposes us to begin looking at the world through the eyes of kindness. And kindness is something our world sorely needs. And what a lot of Buddhist teachers have pointed out who have come to America, both Asian teachers and also American teachers, is that, as a generalization, Americans need a lot more kindness especially towards themselves, than Asian practitioners. There seems the level of self-loathing, low self-esteem, self-deprecation, self-doubt in our culture uh, is kind of has reached epidemic levels. And so much so that I wonder if it isn't contagious. And, um, and it's, some, some of them, the Asian teachers coming to America are just blown away by what they find out here. And then the practice of loving-kindness sometimes is really the best practice for someone to start with when they do Buddhist practice. For some people, the practice of mindfulness can actually make people worse, oddly enough. If a person is very self-conscious and all they tend to look at themselves is their faults and their problems and, you know, they don't even, you, don't, you don't have to have, you know, if you, certain people in the West don't, don't even have to have a fault to fundamentally believe they're at fault. You know, like original sin, right? <laughs> original fault. And, um, and so if you have that kind of tendency, the practice of mindfulness, which makes, brings on a kind of self, kind of introspection, will sometimes, oddly enough, fuel the tendency to be self-conscious, self-deprecating, self-loathing, self-whatever. It's like it gives you more material to, to more proof that how bad you are. Someone once said, self-knowledge is seldom good. So, so for some people, mindfulness practice is not the best place to start. And rather, the best place to start is with loving-kindness practice. And every day, maybe for half an hour or so, every day in your morning meditation, just do loving-kindness. Initially, maybe do it just to yourself. Just yourself for a whole half hour, for weeks on end. Because some people are already so hard on themselves... Sometimes it doesn't work very well to do it to yourself. The Buddha took it f- 
for granted that it was easy for everyone to start with themselves. He, hadn't, he wasn't teaching in America. So some people will um, then not start with themselves, but will start with other people. Some, a caregiver, someone who's cared about you. And sometimes it's a lot easier to have intentions of goodwill towards someone who's been kind towards you. And then after that, you switch. And then maybe it's easier to do it towards yourself. So, you, so the traditional way is to start with yourself. And it's not meant to be ego, egotistical. It's meant to be actually be very healthy. It's very, very healthy to develop a sense of goodwill towards yourself. Some people will say you cannot have real love for other people unless there is some kind of love towards yourself. And so if you really want to be of service to others, you need to start towards yourself. And then you expand the the practice out to include those people who are your benefactors, people who care about you. And then you expand the practice out by bringing to mind those people who are neutral in your life. You don't have any particular feeling of for or against, like or not like. Now, sometimes some people find it's very hard to think of such a person because as soon as you think of someone, you immediately have a like or dislike. But it's meant to be like the mail carrier or someone you hardly know at all. It's not a charged thing. Someone more or less neutral. And after you've done that and kind of stabilize yourself on those three categories of people, self, benefactor, and neutral person, then the challenge becomes to expand the sense of goodwill to include people who um, the traditional word is enemy. In the West, we don't like to use the word enemy. So we use the difficult person. <laughs> but the Buddhist word is the enemy. And, um, and that just throws people for a loop, right? You know, my enemy, you know, the person who's caused me the most harm, I'm supposed to have kindness towards them and goodwill to them and and it seems impossible, you know. Why should I? And that person doesn't deserve it, that jerk. And everyone deserves the intention of kindness, of wanting their well-being. And so it becomes a little stretch then. And sometimes you have to do some reflection and work on that and understand what it means to have kindness towards someone and maybe develop some wisdom around it. It doesn't mean you condone what they've done. It doesn't mean you become foolish around them or lower your defenses maybe if they're still tending to, to harm you. But it means at least you don't lock them out of your heart, out of your heart. Then the practice becomes more expansive. Then you're supposed to, what's called, break down the barriers. And this means that once you've done those four categories, then you want to imagine all four people standing in front of you. And you want to direct the same level of goodwill to all four. So there's no barrier. It isn't like you're more loving towards a benefactor and you know you've done doing pretty well with the enemy, but you know it's kind of like it's you know a few notches below the benefactor. You want to lower the barrier so it's equal to everyone. And then your meditation teacher will go and test you. And I probably shouldn't tell you the test and the answer, <laughs> but the the test is um, if you find yourself um, with yourself, a benefactor, a neutral person, and an enemy, and some horrible bandit comes along and tells you, okay, you've got to choose one of those four people and I'm going to kill them. Which one would you choose? Bandit has told you, you have to choose. So which one are you going to choose? You can choose your enemy, the neutral person, your benefactor, or yourself. The answer 
which I shouldn't tell you, <laughs> is you're not supposed to, you, 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 you no longer have any criteria by which to decide who should go first. And when, you, when the barriers are lowered entirely, you would just throw up your hand and say, I can't decide. <laughs> um, so I, you know, it's not a very satisfying test. <laughs> it just happens to be one that's used. Um, so after that, then it's very, it gets a very involved meditation. And uh, people usually do it, when it gets disinvolved, people will do it on retreats where people are meditating all day long for maybe sometimes days and weeks on end. Just develop, all they're doing is developing this loving kindness. So you need to vary it a little bit to make it interesting. Right? And um, so then after those four people together, then you begin doing different categories of being. You think of all women, may they be happy. All men, may they be happy. All children, all animals. And you kind of cover all these categories of beings. And then you think of all beings in the, in the West and all beings in the East and up and down, all directions. You kind of, it kind of expands the heart or the mind and kind of makes it much more spacious. You're becoming more boundless. You're kind of becoming more inclusive. And the sense of inclusivity goes up way beyond you. It's almost like you become much bigger than you are. Your consciousness kind of becomes so expansive and includes everything around you. Some people will expand to include first the people in the room where they're sitting in. May all these people who are sitting in this room, may they be happy. May all the beings in Palo Alto be happy. May everyone in California be happy, in the United States and the world. And the idea, if you're doing this well and you're concentrated and very stable, the mind becomes very, very expansive. Almost as if you're holding everything within the mind. The mind is just infinitely large and can handle and hold everything within it. Until finally it becomes boundless and there's no directions, no boundary, no limit to the love. Infinite love, infinite kindness. Kind of a huge bubble that encompasses the whole universe. And um, it's a lovely state to be sitting in. Um, For most of us, we don't take the meditation that far. But it's a very, even to practice it a little bit is very significant. To practice it in different circumstances in our lives. I love doing it at the airports. Uh, love, maybe it's like not quite the right, right word, because it's not always pleasant to do it in the airports. But um, I like doing it in airports, and what I do is I sit and I watch the people walking by. And you don't get a very high percentage of smilers in an airport. And so you get kind of a lot of people who kind of look kind of grumpy or serious. Or, and I imagine them, I kind of look at the person walking by, and I imagine them, this thing I told you earlier, like what they were like when, when you know, maybe as a child with their mother or their father, you know, in the best of all family circumstances. Or I look, and they look at their face and imagine what that face would look like if it was really happy. So I do kind of a little imagination. And then when I can catch that little kind of imaginary face of happiness, then I kind of just without them knowing, of course. I say, may you be happy, may you be well. And it's a much better way of spending my time at the airport than looking at that television screen up there on the, on the ceiling, you know, or pacing, or being impatient, or whatever else might go on.
Loving-kindness practice is often offered as an antidote to anger. It's not meant to um, eradicate the anger or to deny the anger or avoid it. But it's meant to kind of be a tenderizer so when anger arises, the anger doesn't have the upper hand. You know, it's kind of being led around by the nose of the anger. But the anger can be there, but you bring loving-kindness to yourself as a way of kind of balancing it so you can maybe begin seeing the situation through the eyes of kindness more or just so the anger is not in charge. Especially when the anger is really overwhelming and obviously in charge. Practicing loving-kindness for a while is a way of kind of cooling out. And sometimes you do loving-kindness directly to the anger. Again, not as, an aggress- not as an aggressive act towards the anger to get rid of it, but just hold the anger in a friendly way. May this anger be safe. May it be happy. May it be well. Whatever works for you. And, um, you know, often anger is really an expression of fear. And if that's the case, fear often just wants to be reassured and wants to be kind of receive some kindness. And you can do it to yourself. So what was it like for some of you to do that half an hour of loving-kindness practice? Any reaction to it is allowable. Yes? And, uh, almost a uh, scary experience. Scary. Because as I started feeling my heart and you know, trying to have you know, the, uh, the loving-kindness uh, suggestions that you're going through, I felt something hard inside, almost dark. Yes. I'm not, really not sure what that might be. This is one of the functions of loving-kindness practice is to reveal that. And in Buddhism it said it's much better to know that that's there than to go around with a heart that's closed and dark and hard and not know that it's there. It's an improvement to know it's there, even though it's unpleasant. And then you can either continue doing loving-kindness practice, even sometimes just direct it directly to that hardness. Not all of you, just that part of you. Or just do loving-kindness and just in the way we talked about earlier. And that might help, just tenderizing. It might just be very, it might be the very thing that hardness wants, that never felt any love or kindness or tenderness towards it. Just having that washing yourself in kindness is let it kind of thaw. Or you might just switch to mindfulness practice and bring mindfulness to bear on that hardness and just, just look at it very honestly and just feel it and be present for it and study your, your reactions and relationship to it. But I would I recommend that it's very significant that a part of you and it's well worth you know practicing with it. Thank you. Please. So sometimes I would while I was reciting the, the words in my mind, I would actually have a very strong sense of well-being, either corrected for myself or benefactor. And other times it just was words, and it, there didn't seem to be any pattern. It was just sort of like the feelings of well-being would sort of come and go and come and go. The feeling, the feelings are not as important as what as what you're doing is watering those seeds of intention. 
And we, we often many of us focus on how we're feeling as being really what's important. I got the feeling, you know, great. The feeling is not is really secondary. So you can let go of any concern about am I feeling nice or not. And just keep matter of factly kind of watering the seeds of that intention. If the feeling of kindness does arise, there's an art to kind of not holding on to it, but kind of letting it kind of nudge you for kind of encourage you or keep you on track. So you don't have to ignore the feeling, but you can kind of appreciate it. And the appreciation of, and the appreciation of it kind of helps keep you on track with the phrases and with the intention. Does that make sense? Hmm. It felt like I should be breathing in the whole phrase, the whole thought, uh-huh. as I was sending out the, it's a fraction, it was a different sensation. Yeah, I mean, I was it, like that since I was a child. You were like what? Since I was a child, I had this thing about whenever I breathe in a good thought, but if I breathe in a bad thought, then I would redo my breathing. Ah, oh, I see. When I was little, I was superstitious about oh. it. I see, see. Yeah. Oh, so you have some old habit there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, um, it can take a long time to develop a wholesome relationship to oneself, to have a feeling of kindness or well-being towards oneself. It's really well worth the endeavor, the effort to find that, but it requires a lot of patience. And so if your benefactor worked best for you, to do a benefactors a lot and then gingerly kind of include yourself, kind of, in a, you know, realizing it might be hard and painful or awkward or confusing. Just keep doing it anyway, very gently. And slowly, slowly, you'll find your way to a more wholesome relationship to yourself. And it's Can you re- sit yourself beside your benefactor? Sorry? Can you sit yourself beside Oh, that's a great, yes. You can imagine yourself, you can imagine yourself sitting next to your benefactor or any other person, and then do it for both of you, maybe. Or so all kinds of create The loving-kindness practice, you're allowed to be very creative. You can use your imagination. You can make up your own phrases. Um, there's no right way of doing it. There's a traditional, classic way of doing it. And if you do, that, do it in a, on a long meditation retreat, it may be valuable there to kind of follow the classic formulas and way. But if you're doing it as part of your daily life, if you can feel playful even and creative, it might be a lot easier to come to a wholesome relationship to yourself. Yeah, so imagine yourself sitting next to your benefactor. One benefactor on each side. <laughs> so if some of you spoke and some of you, nothing happened at all. And <laughs> Please. I've never heard of people doing that, but uh, as I said, you can be creative and certainly you're welcome to try. But uh, you might uh, imagine yourself, um, uh, imagine what your benefactor sees in you. When the benefactor looks at you, what image does a benefactor have of you? Because someone in the world has a good image of yourself. So it's possible to have it. And so if you put yourself in their shoes, in a sense, you might, um, might, might be easier.
It doesn't have to be an ima- image also. It can be a feeling tone, a feeling towards oneself. Yes, please. I was trying to feel the feeling of it. And that when you're saying that the feeling is the least is the less important and the one of the intention. Right. And I I just I don't think I understand that yet. The wish, the the sense of goodwill, the the idea, the the motivation. You might, oh, it'd be a really good idea if I was happy or that person was happy. It's kind of a, the attitude is kind of like the the, the theistic attitude of um, uh, may that may that person be happy, God willing. It's like you're not making it happen, you're not demanding it happen, just you know, God willing, kind of like you know. So this feeling doesn't have to be there. Just this kind of wish. And there's certainly no demand or expectation that it's supposed to happen. It's like God willing, you know, kind of way of doing it. And um, a lot of Buddhists will do this, um, do loving-kindness meditation for uh, people who are in distress. So like someone who's going for surgery or someone in great life crisis or whatever it might be. And they want to do something to help, but they're not actually possible to be present physically or whatever. Or even if you are present physically, like at someone's deathbed, they're dying. A wonderful practice to do is this loving kindness practice to wish this person well and do the practice and and um, through some channels which maybe aren't ob- so obvious, it seems to have a, a big effect on the people around us. And uh, we can speculate what those channels are, but um, Well, what, if no one has more to say, what I'd like to do then is to um, do another aspect of loving-kindness meditation as a closing meditation. But if you'd like to stand first for just a few moments and stretch... Or-